are listening to the Eurofolk Radio Network at eurofolkradio.com. And now, it's the Andrew Carrington Hitchcock Show with your host, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. Hello everybody, it is Sunday and it's quite an important day today because it's actually the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, which is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to need to finish on time because when this show finishes in the UK, it will be the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which is when we traditionally in the UK have a minute silence for the people that have died in all the conflicts over the years. So I'm going to bring up my co-host right now, Paul English. Paul, are you with me? I am with you, Andrew, and uh, good to be here on this uh, auspicious day, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got um, the. I always like to go. Uh, regular listeners will know. I like to go to things like Wikipedia to get the mainstream take on something because then they can't be saying that uh, or we're saying things out of turn. I always like to give their take, and then we can offer any different interpretation. So the armist armistice day. Sorry, I'm struggling with that word. Armistice day uh, page on Wikipedia. Introduction. Armistice Day is commemorated every year on 11th of November to mark the armistice signed between the Allies of World War I and Germany at Compiègne, France, for the cessation of hostilities on the Western Front of World War I, which took effect at 11 o'clock in the morning, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. The armistice initially expired after a period of 36 days. A formal peace agreement was only reached when the Treaty of Versailles was signed the following year. The date is a national holiday in France and was declared a national holiday in many allied nations. In some countries, Armistice Day coincides with Remembrance Day and Veterans Day and other public holidays. Armistice Day is not celebrated in Germany, but a German national day of mourning, Volkstag, has since 1952 been observed on the Sunday closest to the 16th of November. So there's a little bit about it. Paul, I understand we had a uh, chat, as we always do before we recorded this show, and there's been some pushback from people as to why you shouldn't uh, celebrate this day, or rather, it's not celebrate, really. It's like a minute's silence to honour those that died. And I must admit, when I look back and I, I think to myself, you know, uh, these these people shouldn't have been out there, they were fighting for our true enemy, um, but they didn't know that, did they? They didn't, no, they didn't know it. And had we been alive, you know, we were discussing this, were we not, before the show, had we been alive at that time, in all likelihood, we would not have known that either. You, you know, each generation gets the degree of truth or the lack of it that they get. And if we look back into the world 100 years ago, uh, which is not as difficult as it used to be because we've been equipped with so much additional information, particularly over these last 15 or 20 years or so, uh, you can get a real sense of how, well, how easy it was, relatively speaking, to manipulate people. Um, I don't think it's that the sentiment to defend the country didn't exist. It definitely existed. Um, and that's a great boon for any nation, it's uh, to be expected. Uh, but it was abused, of that there's no doubt. And uh, it was callously disregarded. And I think it's an appalling, they're both appalling conflicts, you know, because obviously here on Armistice Day, we we commemorate um, the end of World War One, but it's also used to acknowledge and commemorate all those that lost their lives, uh, both soldiers and civilians. Uh, during World War Two and other conflicts, 
they try to expand it each year, but the heart of it really is World War One and World War Two, and particularly World War One, obviously because of this date that has been picked. And so, a hundred years after those events, um, it's hard to believe. And um, it was just a, it's a terrible, terrible conflict. And and where do your emotions and sentiments lie? I I look at it and say, yeah, those guys were fooled into fighting for something that didn't need to be fought for at all. Everybody involved in that conflict, the whole thing's a setup. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we can we can lay the same criticism as well at World War Two because that's also it's a correct criticism, an observation. But we have to put ourselves in their position. I, I'm not blaming any of the troops. I mean, you could say, you know, you hear comments like, well, they were idiots. Well, we would have been idiots. I'm reasonably sure. I'm pretty certain that we would have too, would have been among the ranks of those idiots getting blown to bits all over the place. Um, there's something about the sheer mechanized slaughter of World War One that's just disgusting. And uh, it's more like a meat processing factory. There's just something incredibly hideous about it. Uh, or at least that's the impact it has on me in comparison to... I mean, you have to say the U.S. Civil War, of course, was, was automated slaughter in many ways. Um, uh, you know, it's the use of repeating firearms. The technology of weaponry had escalated so that slaughter could really be ramped up big time. And uh, by the time we got to World War One, as everybody knows from the pictures and the footage that we have, it was hell, really. There's no other way to describe it. So, And I think people are possibly, you know, sometimes it's a bit awkward, isn't it, to know how to deal with it. Different generations. I mean, if we go back, say, to the 60s, which was the generation of peace and love, they probably were appalled by it, you know, as it being a testament to the violence of Western nations and all this, that and the other. And from from that perspective, it's true. Um, it is. It was an extreme. You couldn't say it wasn't violent or awful. But but you need more than one perspective, I think, to get a, a feel for really the whole mess of it. Um, and I'm sure, Andy, just like in, in all of these major conflicts that we are aware of, particularly within that century, which was a century of hell, really, for Western Christian civilization, it was destroyed effectively, you know, during the 20th century. Um all the people that were involved in those things just thought they were doing good at the time and wouldn't have had a, be a better frame of reference to deal with it. So we have to give them the benefit of that doubt. I mean, you just have to. And people will look back, maybe they would look back, on this era, this era of information conflict, which always unfortunately precedes the actual physical blows. Uh, and it's beginning to look more and more like that's the direction they want things to go in. But they may look back on us and say, what a bunch of idiots. They had all that technology and they didn't do X, Y, and Z, which, you know, from a higher perspective may become obvious from a distance. But we can only see what we can see and do what we can do at the time. So and that generation that went through it, it's it's awful. It's it's, it's truly – there's something sickening about World War One. Um, they're all terrible, and we know a lot more life was lost in World War Two. But there's just something about um, all those young men from all those sides just being mowed down day after day after day, and the commanders and everybody not really thinking that that's too much of a problem. That's what kind of makes you feel ill. Absolutely. And um, with something like this, folks, I mean – I'm reminded of what Gutel Schnaper said, the mother of the first five uh, Rothschilds. And uh, don't forget the six sisters that nobody wants to talk about and how many families that they've no doubt infiltrated. 
And she said, if my sons did not want walls, there would be none. And that was around mid-1800s she came out with that statement. Um, so when I look at uh, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, this uh, minute silence uh, straight after this programme, I don't think of... Um, I think of people that have suffered. I mean, I'll, I'll grab... I do this a lot, you know, but... Uh, I put this at the start of the Synagogue of Satan. It's the dedication. Dedicated to the millions of men, women and children who throughout the centuries have suffered at the behest of this Synagogue of Satan. You are not forgotten. And that was really what motivated me to write the book to give these people a voice. And so the people I remember will be the soldiers from both sides who were duped into fighting each other. But then not just people of our race. How about uh, the people in Japan that suffered? How about... Um, blacks who were put on Jewish-owned slave ships who suffered, some of them dying, many of them dying during the crossing in the conditions that they were in. Uh, all these different things, you, I regard it as a time to remember the victims of the real enemy that is not being revealed to us and not uh, a chance to jump up about Germans and things like that and how awful they are, which so many British people are sadly duped into even to this day. You know, you just have to see the atmosphere when England are facing Germany in a football match and it's like the great rivalry and all this. And actually, we're kind of uh, closer in, in uh, racial terms than we are with uh, many other countries. So I think that whilst I can understand people's feelings that, you know, we don't want to honour it in the way that the mainstream are, you know, all these wonderful people and they fought for our freedoms and all this sort of stuff. When you look at what happened to us since World War Two, for example, and freedom is the last thing that we've got. We've lost our culture, our society, and I make the point regularly that uh, if these people could see the state of Britain today, would they have even gone to fight if they'd have known what it, the end result would be? And But as Paul said, they didn't know. They did it because they thought they were doing the right thing, and uh, they were lied to. And that's the purpose of what we do now, is we honour these people by acknowledging that they were duped, but they still made that sacrifice based upon what they felt was protecting their own people. So we can set the record straight now as to why they were sent to these numerous wars while still honouring these people. And I just want to jump into, well, actually, Paul, your comments before I come in with uh, something about the Battle of the Somme. Well, yeah, I've not got much, too much to add, really, at this opening phase of, the, of, of today's little show, I think. You know, that that's it. They weren't to know. And that's the bit that I remember is, or the bit that, that's, that sits with me that has an impact is the loyalty that all of these men showed to their nations um, to do that. And you see, that's the bit that's been abused. It's, it's, it's taking one of the highest qualities that a man could exhibit, which is to defend his people. And unfortunately, for that quality to be under the control of, of the very enemy that you can't see <laughs> and to therefore, unfortunately, uh, and unfortunately is not a strong enough word to see everything that you love be wrecked indirectly by the fact that you have been deceived. Um, we, you know, the origins of world war one, uh, they go back, you know, well before world war one, they go back to the Boer war. They go back to the empire of the city of London. They never 
was a British empire. It was always the empire of the city, still is to this day. And, um, you know, the, the foundations were laid, well, even prior to the Boer War. You've got that book by uh, Albert Pike, the Civil War guy, you know, Morals and Dogma, where he lays out the three world wars in these letters that he did with Mazzini. Um, of which uh, the third one we are in right now, which is the the conflict between or the remnant of Christian Europe, I think we can say, and the Islamic world. And he iterated all of these things, and World War One was the opening, uh, you know, bomb of the whole thing. So we do need to know the foundations of it to be able to have a decent understanding of it. And unfortunately, and to our great shame, Many people from Britain played a leading role in bringing that conflict about, albeit as part of the city, you know. So these are the traitors. I view them that way. They're, they're completely barking mad. And I think the um, the hubris that they developed from the empire and all this other guff, <coughs> which which a very small select few people in this nation were in charge of and benefited from, whereas the vast majority of Britain suffered because of it, you know, people forget even going back into the 17 and 1800s, impressment, you know, the roaming, roaming gangs of uh, Navy employees getting guys out of pubs and just pressing them into the Navy, you know, <laughs> total bang out of order. So the, the so-called our masters here in this nation have treated us as scum for hundreds of years. And that attitude still resides today. We can see it, can we not, in the sort of ridiculous abuse that they're paying, even after we've told them to get us out of Europe. You know, the, the, the form's different, but the behavior is exactly the same. We've told them to take us out of Europe, but they just, they're just taking, extracting the urine, to, to put it in a nice way. Well, I'd like to touch upon what you said about, uh, you, you made the statement early in the program that the US Civil War was automated slaughter. And this leads us into the Battle of the Somme. And uh, again, I'm going to wiki here. And uh, let me go up to the top. The Battle of the Somme, also known as the Somme Offensive, was a battle of the First World War fought by the armies of the British Empire and France against the German Empire. It took place between the 1st of July and the 18th of November 1916 on both sides of the upper reaches of the River Somme in France. The battle was intended to hasten a victory for the Allies and was the largest battle of the First World War on the Western Front. More than three million men fought in the battle and one million men were wounded or killed, making it one of the bloodiest battles in human history. And now I'm going to go down to the um, death toll. Uh, just to run through the casualties here. And um, we've got 350,000 from the United Kingdom, 24,029 from Canada, 23,000 from Australia, 7,408 from New Zealand, 3,000 from South Africa, and uh, 2,000 from Newfoundland. And you've got a total British Commonwealth of 419,654. And then on top of that, you've got the French of 204,253, making total Allied casualties of 623,907. And then on the German side, it's got a figure of between 465 and 600,000 people died. So you're looking at over 1.2 million, really. 
uh, most likely if these figures are indeed accurate. These are the mainstream figures that we're being advised. But I go back to your comment that the US Civil War was automated slaughter. I have absolutely no doubt that this battle was engineered to get white people killing white people, which is what the enemy seemed to delight in and have done over time, Paul. Yeah, the the whole program was put onto a sort of proper footing once once the Bank of England had been established in 1694. That gave them the ability then to organise all of these things. And if we trace, you know, we don't need to go too far back, really. But the last 500 years, as I often touch upon here, from Henry VIII onwards, is the modern era of the destruction of our people. Um, it took quite a few hundred years to build up. But once they'd got the bank established, look at what rolled through. We, we'd had the, the English Civil Wars, the opening shot. That, re, that readjusts England and kills the king. They take the king's head off. Then they uh, amplify that in the French Revolution. Um, and the conditions for uh, exacerbating conflict in France are being echoed right now. It's exactly the same in the States and across Europe. Uh, you know, the jingoism the division, the polarizing of views so that neither side can now understand one another. This is definitely occurring. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got then the American Civil War. We have the Russian Revolution. We have a, a series of revolutions in Russia um, before they finally got it together in 1917 and, and managed to get a hold of the whole of Russia and then the slaughter that ensued from there. It's clear um, that there is a pattern. And, of course, it's not been possible to see that pattern. Uh, most people average people with average opportunities in life to acquire information would never have been able to see that at all. You wouldn't have been able to see that line. You wouldn't have been able to see it even 40 years ago because we didn't have access. People like you and I did not have access to the documents that are necessary that fill in the gaps. The, the records from the losers, supposedly, we're all losers in these things, you know. We won the war. I remember singing that as a small child in the playground in the 1960s. Of course, it's a complete joke. We, do, we won nothing. But, you know, you're programmed with these things. It's okay being pro You can't avoid it. You're going to get programmed with something. The knack is to be aware that it's going on. Then you can step out of it and observe it like as a sort of an engineer, almost like prod yourself and look at the sort of stupid things that have got into your head, and then you can get rid of them. So that's fine. It's recoverable. It's when you are surrounded by people who never, ever get to that point of understanding. And then you get this jingoism, you get this sort of mindless flag-waving. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not against waving flags. I think anything that binds our people together is a good thing. But often it, it can be done in a in a stupid way, in a bovine way, in a herd mentality way. And it's that herd mentality that, unfortunately, the uh, so-called rulers of the day have taken full advantage of and managed to whip people up into a frenzy over all sorts of things. So... Yeah, the mechanized slaughter of our people has been building and building, and World War One, in a way, is the most um, blunt and direct example of that, in that you've got two lines of men separated by 100 yards of dirt and mud and filth, and they stand up and blow each other to bits. I mean, that's really, you know, that's what it looks like. I'm sure, obviously, there were lots of sound, good reasons for doing it. I mean, I saw an interview with... Um, uh, Lord Montgomery of Alamein, the general who is best known for his um, his work, if that's the right word, in the desert campaign against Rommel during World War II. Extremely interesting and formidable man. And it was an interview conducted, I think, on Canadian television in the early 60s when he was still alive. And he's making an observation about the men under his command at in World War One. He was at the Somme. He was an officer. 
And he said, in passing, he said that he realized that the whole thing was a complete mess. Um, and he said, you have to understand that on the morning, the opening morning of the Somme, he said, we lost in four hours 15,000 men in four hours. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible for us to believe this. I mean, is that a day in history, Andy, you would like to go back and witness? I don't know whether I would. I think I probably ought to, if you know what I mean. I don't want to get scarred by it, but I, I can't imagine what that must be like. That's 15,000 men just on our side in four hours. And um, he, he made the the observation. He said, the this is very interesting as well. He said, the men under my command in World War One." he said, didn't know very much. He said they didn't know very much. And uh, you see, you have to take this into account. They hadn't had any broad range of information. Here we are talking about things from a historical perspective. These are guys that are butchers and candlestick makers and guys that work in farms, particularly pulled a lot of people off of farms. You know, the food production in, in England nosedived because of it. It was starvation that really nearly did us in. Um, and uh, so they wouldn't have known much. You know, and you look at that, you go, they're just doing this because they love their country. And that's the thing. That's what I look at when you see those faces going off. And Montgomery said um, they didn't know anything. He said, and the number one recruiting agent in World War One, he said, was hunger. See, these, these pieces of information, I think, are invaluable. He said, back in England, they couldn't eat properly. But in the army, they got three meals a day. Think about that. Oh, yeah, I'll go. You're going to feed me and I get clean boots. I mean, until they get, you know, chewed up by rats and everything like that. It's these what appear to be small details. You see how people are moved to do things because they wanted to eat. Literally, they had to eat. And so they got fed better in the army than they did if they stayed on Civvy Street. And that was a great recruiting agent. Then he said that the men that he had under his command in World War II required a much more sophisticated psychological approach from his point of view. He said, because they were educated by now. Many of them were educated. Uh, uh, so in between the war period, an awareness, an interest, a passion, probably no doubt caused by the decimation of World War I, had galvanized a lot of people to get to grips, the beginning of a sort of, we better we better take a look at what's really going on. And so he, he, he said they were a much more intelligent um, and individually driven series of men that he led in World War II than he did in World War I. Um, and, of course, when you start referring to people like Montgomery or the generals, it's almost as if you're beginning to eulogize about the brilliance of war and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I don't want to come across like that, but he impressed me because he took an extremely pragmatic view. That was the situation in the world at the time. And he said he got severely injured himself, I think, towards the tail end of the war, 1917. He said, and I was recuperating. And I made a decision, he said, that I would uh, – that the whole thing was a mess, that the uh, that fighting wars was far too important to leave it to conscription and amateur armies. He said that's what we had in World War One, and that's what everybody had. People were pulled out of Civvy Street. He said it was no good. He said the generals that were lauded the most in World War One, he said, were the bloodiest. They were the ones who had the greatest losses and casualties as if this was some sort of sign of their valor or their courage, which no doubt it was – but it wasn't them that was getting blown to bits, was it? It was these guys that they'd roped in. Um, and it's these human stories that get me. I find it, it's extremely unpleasant. 
And I think no doubt it's that was probably similar for the for the U.S. Civil War when you've got brothers fighting against brothers, similar sort of thing. The Russian Revolution, exactly the same. It's this human element that is often swept aside or is not given a great deal of of acknowledgement in the accounts because we we view it from a bigger picture. Um, so that that little insight with him. Uh, if I can find it for you, and it might even be worth nailing into the post on this, so I can get it in time, and you could put it in. It's a, it's only twenty five minutes long, and he's extremely clear minded, and he's talking about how people just don't know very much, and this is real. He doesn't want people to be ignorant. He's arguing against it. So we don't want people stupid. If we've got people that are really fully informed, we can avoid all this nonsense. Um, so that was. Uh, I didn't think I was going to mention that, but I did. There you go. <laughs> Well, thank you for that, and um, I'm going to give you my account of the First World War from my research, and then hand back to you, and then hopefully we can move on to the second. It's somewhat ambitious, yeah. but it'd be good to get this in. So um, I've got here 1914, the start of World War One. In this war, the German Rothschilds loan money to the Germans, the British Rothschilds loan money to the British, and the French Rothschilds loan money to the French. Furthermore, the Rothschilds have control of the three European news agencies. Wolf, established 1849 in Germany, Reuters, established 1851 in England, and Havas, established 1835 in France. The Rothschilds use Wolf to manipulate the German people into a fervour for war. It is around this time that the Rothschilds are rarely reported in the media because they own the media. Now we move on to 1916, the middle of World War I. Germany are winning the war as they are being financed by the Rothschilds to a greater extent than France, Italy and England, simply because the Rothschilds do not want to support the Tsar in Russia. And of course, Russia was on the same side as France, Italy and England. Then a significant event occurs. On December the 12th, Germany... Although they were winning the war and not one foreign soldier had set foot on their soil, offers armistice to Britain, with no requirement of reparations. The Rothschilds are anxious to make sure this is not accepted by the British, as they have a few cards left up their sleeve in relation to what they initiated this war for. So, whilst the British are considering Germany's offer, Rothschild agent Louis Brandeis sends a Zionist delegation from America to Britain to promise to bring America into the war on the side of the British, provided the British agree to give the land of Palestine to the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds wanted Palestine to protect the great business interests they had in the East. They also desired their own state in that area, along with their own military, which they could use as an aggressor to any state that threatened those interests. The British subsequently agree to the deal for Palestine and the Zionists in London contact their counterparts in America and inform them of this fact. Suddenly, all the major newspapers in America that up to that point have been pro-German turn on Germany running propaganda pieces to manipulate the American public against the Germans, such as German soldiers are killing Red Cross nurses and German soldiers are cutting off babies' hands. Interestingly, Woodrow Wilson is re-elected president this year, the slogan of his campaign being, re-elect the man who will keep your sons out of the war. Now we go into 1917. As a result of Germany's offer, for pe offer of peace, the Rothschild war machine goes into total overdrive in America, spreading anti-German propaganda throughout the American media, which leads to President Wilson under the instructions of Jewish-American Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis reneging on his promise to the electorate and taking America into World War I on April the 6th. 
As per the Rothschild promise to the British to take America into the war, they decide they want something in writing from the British to prove that they will uphold their side of the bargain. The British Foreign Secretary, Arthur James Balfour, therefore drafts a letter commonly known as the Balfour Declaration, and this is how it reads. Foreign Office, November 2, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild... I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours sincerely, Arthur James Balfour. Now, the Balfour Declaration was never submitted to the British Parliament. On June 21st, 1922, the House of Lords passed a resolution expressing its dissatisfaction with the terms of the mandate. Indeed, Lord Islington stated that it was in direct violation of the British government's pledges and promises to the people of Palestine, and if it were adopted, it would start a running saw in the east and no one can tell how far that saw will extend interestingly the balfour declaration was never published until after the war in 1920 could this be because the jewish controlled british government were worried that if british soldiers knew that they were fighting for the interests of jews whose terrorist groups would show their thanks by blowing them up only a few years later rather than their racial brethren they may lay down their weapons and refuse to fight. So there you go, Paul. There's plenty of information for you to comment on there. Over to you. Yeah. The good old Balfour Declaration, eh? <clears throat> Wasn't there a video released recently with an interview with uh, Jacob Rothschild? I think it was in the last few years where he's got the document there and he's all sort of quite chuffed about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, from their point of view, I suppose they can be chuffed because they got what they wanted, apparently, so we are told. Um, but you can just see the hand of deception in the whole thing. I mean, another point that's worth just mentioning, it might seem small, but it's definitely a causative factor, is that by about 1905, 1906, um, and these are tumultuous times when you think about it. I mean, after the after the U.S. Civil War, the banks in America had a problem because – uh, the productive, the tremendous productive nature of American industry was such that no one was making loans from banks. They didn't need to. <laughs> this is what happens when, and this is a key part really of, of much of our troubles, is the interference of banking, of parasites, to get a hold on the substance of production. And, and, this, and they do it by manipulating politicians into war whenever it suits their purposes, as we are talking about right now. But what was occurring in the States at the time, this is a bit of a run-up at it, was that uh, factories were able to, to develop a new factory out of their own funds. They were totally cash-rich. So the loan book of the big uh, northern banks in the States was shriveling. And that's when they lay in the plan for a flexible currency, i.e. the Federal Reserve, which came about in 1913, just before World War One. How interesting. All these things are well, well organized and coordinated. There's a whole chain here. And the more you look at them, the more the... Paul, are you still there? 
Paul, I think we've lost you. I'm going to have to hang up and... Oh, here he is. You back, Paul. You've cut out. Blast. Yeah, 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 I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Damn it. Right, folks, I'm going to try and get him back. Hold on. Try and get him back on the Skype. Um, try and... Paul, are you I hope I'm me? back. Am I back with you? Yeah, you're back. Yeah, it's just to do with these technical problems just of today. It's not a good day for them to arrive, but there we go. Which bit I got to? I don't think... I think I lost a little bit. I was just talking about the... Uh, the industrial capacity of Germany, really, by about 1905, 1906, had overtaken that of Britain. Did it? Did you get that bit? Yes, yes, we did. So carry yeah. on from there. Yeah, so so that that's what occurred. And Lord Grey and uh, the Milner Roundtable people, of which Rothschild, Lord Rothschild, was a member, so there's the connection, they, even then, in their haughty manner, decided that the only way to deal with Germany was to uh, chew it up in a war, to reduce its industrial capacity. Uh, there was no reason to do this, of course, other than that by now the arrogance in this group, this city group, uh, was unbridled. And uh, so this is the worst aspect of that, uh, of the of the nature of these people, that they were quite willing to just talk about this as if it was okay, it was fine, you know, all for commercial purposes. And, of course, none of the benefits uh, were going to accrue to the British people, just as none of the benefits of the so-called British Empire had ever accrued to them either. Um, it's just a, a complete scam, you know, from start to finish. You dress up this rampant uh, city of London commercialism in the British flag, and you've got everybody suckered into doing it. So um, in spite of all that, of course, there were many good things that came out of it, I believe, uh, but many bad things as well. And, and overall, it was an unnecessary. The whole empire project was unnecessary in many ways. But you, there is even bigger pictures to consider, which we shouldn't really go into in this show, I suppose, because we get too, too sidetracked. But But that's definitely a causative factor and if you look it's echoed really with with world war Two. there's no difference in many ways or this tremendous there are differences but there are tremendous similarities you had uh, with world war Two by jumping now to the back end of things we have because of the treaty of versailles you know germany then has to endure the weimar republic which is a diseased uh, nation of that there's no doubt this really did strongly lay the groundwork for the arrival and the rise of the national, the NSDAP, and of Adolf Hitler. And when he gets into power, what does he do? With inside three years, he gets six million men back to work out of seven million unemployed. Um, they have the Berlin Olympics in 1936 with televisions, television sets in cafes around Berlin. I never remember that being reported, but I've seen the photographs of that. And the country is absolutely thriving, and he did it without the banks, which drove them berserk again. It's true that they funded him to a degree because they, they they were losing control of Russia. The whole thing is like a cat and mouse game. It's not as clear cut as we have been led to believe by any means. Um, but then, um, you know, he wanted to do things his particular way. And, you know, this is a big topic in and of itself. We're certainly not going to cover it in one show. Um, but seeing as how the two events are to be commemorated today, later today, 11 o'clock, we obviously see we need to acknowledge them. So I see World War One and World War Two really as one continuous event with a very large half-time break in the middle. Uh, Lloyd George, uh, the Treaty of Versailles, said we've signed a document here which ensures war in Europe within inside 25 years, and he was bang on the nail. Bang on the nail, you know. So, um, and we have this 
uh, manipulative force embedded in all of it, 90% of the attendees or 80% of the attendees or something like that, a very high proportion anyway, of Versailles were uh, Jewish advisors from America, whatever you want to make of that. <laughs> Federal Reserve guys, you know, dictating the terms which obviously decimated and crushed Germany as an industrial competitor to Britain. That's what that's part of it. That was part of it. And there's that quote I'm paraphrasing from Churchill, which he said to Lord Boothby. Boothby's that little vermin that used to hang around with the Cray, Cray twins. But after the war, I think Churchill wrote a letter to Boothby along the lines of Germany's great mistake. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Germany's great mistake was to exclude international finance from its share of the profits. That's basically it. In other words, no usurers, you, you're not having a part of this. This is nothing to do with you. And so the way that the usurers get their own back is that they call in the loans, as it were. They put pressure on those that are already indebted to them to band together and wage war on the one that's going to break the whole game. And it's, it's, it's the case that there are hardly any documentaries at all, on, and not that I'm surprised by this, uh, on established mainstream channels, and there, there certainly never have been, as I've been growing up, really looking at the economic miracle of Germany and what it was all about. It, there's many ingredients in it. People say, oh, well, there was a lot of money poured in from outside sources. Yeah, there was. So what? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and therefore it was all organized by the banks. No, I don't think so. I think it was uh, a combination of things. And Helmar Schacht, who was the head of the... Uh, the head of the German banking system at the time, he just did some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant things. But he's also an ambivalent character as well. Nothing's, nothing's straight with all of this. Nothing's straight, unfortunately. Thank you, Paul. Well, we can jump forward to um, World War II. I've got uh, a couple of bits here. Firstly, 1939. In Germany, Hitler had been doing phenomenally well in turning his country around economically ever since he came to power. He did this mm -hmm. by breaking with the Jewish international bankers and trading by barter, thus bartering the surplus of goods Germany had with the surplus of goods Germany needed that another country had without debts being incurred on either side. He, like Abraham Lincoln before him, simply issued what money was needed on the authority of the German government, which was backed by the productivity of the German labour force and not the empty promises of Jewish international bankers who, in a country without debt, could not function. As a result of this policy, Germany was able to regenerate the social and spiritual life of all its citizens. Put simply, when you are able to help your people, the people in turn help you, as they are of course happy because they are being respected and are thus able to respect themselves. As a result of Germany being run for the benefit of the Germans as opposed to for the benefit of Jewish bankers, the citizens of Germany were able to make Germany the most powerful and prosperous state in Europe in only a seven-year period. An example of how Hitler achieved this is recorded in William Gailey Simpson's 1978 book Which Way Western Man, in which he states, The German peasant, who had been, been on the verge of utter ruin, was given an honoured status as the source of the nation's food supply. His land was released from the grip of the Jewish usurer and measures taken to ensure that it should remain permanently in the possession of one family handed down from father to son. The Jews could not let this 
continue as they knew it would spell the death of their debt-driven money system and so World War II starts this year in earnest. This war is about one thing, which money system would survive? This is not a war between Germany and the Allies, it is a war between Germany and the Jewish money power who are in control of the Allied leadership and use them and their media to propagandise the Allied populace into hatred of the Germans. Paul, any comments on that? It's bang on, really. I mean, there are there are many other influences at play. There are all sorts of other reasons. Um, but the the monetary one... I believe, is at the heart of nearly all of these conflicts. It's always about plunder. Who's going to be in charge of the plundering process? Well, we know who is in charge, and we know who does everything they can, including wage war or get us to wage war, to retain their control of the, of the system of plunder. Um, you only have to look. It's very difficult, I suppose, for people to look at the, the footage of the happy National Socialist Germans under Hitler and see them as happy people because the the narrative the commentary that has gone around those scenes has you know implied that they're all brainwashed and mad and you know that this is evil look at these happy people it's obviously evil because they're all happy and everything's working because it's all about this attempt that they're about to make to take over the world oh boy i mean it couldn't be more wrong you know but of course what are we to expect from a mainstream media that is built on deception it lies and tells the truth, you know, by equal turns so that you become completely confused. At least that's his intention about which direction you're supposed to jump in and where the good lies. But I think uh, that the, mon the monetary aspect is to be reviewed hard. I mean, I've read a lot of things from a lot of different perspectives about it. You know, the, uh, the monetary policies in many ways were defined by a guy called Gottfried Feder. And uh, Hjalmar Schacht put them into effect uh, there were many corporations that got organized uh, in a much more effective way. Corporations still existed. But, the, but it was the whole idea of being able to develop from strength. And it's the real concern of this from a banking point of view is that once the idea – this is my observation anyway once, – once the idea has taken root in a people, in a nation like Germany, and is demonstrably – far, far more effective than the usury system because everything is far, far more effective than the usury system. Um, what do you, how do you stop that spreading throughout the whole world and removing your target market base? That's the way they view it. You know, If you're involved in usury, you've got to have a, a host off of which to feed. Well, if they become invulnerable to your advances because they're all equipped with an honorable economic system that's based on the value of human beings as opposed to the value of supposed paper money you've got you've got a serious problem that's why it's an all-out fight you know that's why it's an all-out fight with these things and um so i mean even the unfolding of world war ii is, is complex and there's there's betrayal and intrigue on all sides including the german side um the the things that have let down because the power of money gets into into these circuits and you could say really i think andy that our britain is just rotted out because of it and has been for hundreds of years um it's rotted out even to this very day you know um that power still exists and it's a it's that's the power that's being exerted you know when we were talking about when we covered mosley the other week um with the book from when 1937 was it 38 he made lots of prescient observations there 
Um, and I, you know, I'm still coming back to that one, which I think I chuckled out at the time that, you know, we, a government is elected to carry out the will of the people, but then there's another party that exists to frustrate it so that it can't do it. Um, you just see the insanity of all of these things. What's required is engineers. Seriously, engineers are to be put in charge of the management of the country and no one else, not politicians. Um, unfortunately, we can't avoid them. Um, you know, these are the most mediocre of people generally, I feel, because they have their own personal ambitions and they ride on the back of everybody else in a, a manner to try and achieve them. Um, and as Churchill said, you know, history is going to be kind to me because I'm going to write it. And although it's a very witty thing for him to say, it's also uh, true. And uh, it also shows you the deceptiveness uh, of the man, as you know, his deception, nature, nature uh, a highly deceptive, uh, said a lot of really good things, which I can't refute. You know, he did. Um, but unfortunately, he was bent out of whack. And uh, he exacerbated the problem because if you want to look at a, at a person who was the plaything of international finance, Churchill's your man. <laughs> he certainly was. Exactly. And uh, oops, sorry about that. Uh, I wasn't ready there. I've got. To Sounds like the psalm in there, Andy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, my pen. I dropped it. Um, anyway, uh, you mentioned I've got a couple of bits, and then I'll hand back to you. We've got about ten minutes left. Uh, okay. You mentioned Hal Marshacked a couple of times. I recognised the name, so I looked at my index of the Synagogue of Satan. I've got one entry for you, and this goes back to 1930, three years before Hitler came to power in Germany. This year, 33 years after the first World Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland, the first Rothschild World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, is established in the same place, Basel, Switzerland. It is established by Charles G. Dawes, Rothschild agent and vice president under President Calvin Coolidge from 1925 to 1929. Owen D. Young, Rothschild agent, founder of RCA and chairman of General Electric from 1922 until 1939. And Hjalmar Schacht of Germany, president of the Reichsbank. The BIS is referred to by the bankers as the central bank for the central banks. To put this, into, to put this bank into perspective today... Whereas the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank deal with governments, the BIS deals only with other central banks. All its meetings are held in secret and involve the top central bankers from around the world. For example, the former head of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, would go to the BIS headquarters in Basel, Switzerland, ten times a year for these private meetings. And I now want to go to the last thing I've got for you today, folks. And this is um, William Joyce from 1940. This year, William Joyce, living in self-imposed exile in Germany, publishes his book Twilight Over England, in which he states of the Jewish character, adamantine materialism, a flair for assuming mysticism outwardly, a supreme contempt for other races, a complete disregard for other people's rights, cleverness in imitation and improvisation, contempt for all labour not associated with high profits, great energy in the cause of money-making, a hatred of all nationalism but their own, a high degree of loyalty to their own family and their own community, an implicit faith in the power to corrupt Gentiles, a brilliant capacity for intrigue, and a pathetic inability to keep pace with any deeper thought or higher idealism are the chief characteristics of the Jewish race. On all these attributes, volumes could be written, but it should suffice to express the resultant of these forces very simply in the following tendencies. 
1. An inability to avoid forming a state within a state. 2. Complete inability to view their Gentile hosts as possessing equal rights with their own. 3. Predetermined specialisation in all those processes which bring high profit. Hence, in capitalism, almost exclusive preoccupation with finance, distribution and exchange as distinct from productive industry. Professional work undertaken either for profit or for the sake of social advancement. 4. A natural tendency to utilise social and economic advancement for the purpose of gaining political power. 5. An unholy dread of nationalism as a factor which would draw attention to their racial nature and expose their operations. 6. The deliberate debasement of the standards of culture in the land of their sojourn. 7. The elimination by competition of the Aryan who merely wants to get enough for himself and not more than anybody else. These resultants seem to manifest themselves in every land that the Jew inhabits. And finally, in 1946, on January the 3rd, William Joyce is executed. As he awaits his execution, he makes his last statement. In death, as in this life, I defy the Jews who cause this last war, and I defy the power of darkness which they represent. I warn the British people against the aggressive imperialism of the Soviet Union. May Britain be great once again, and in the hour of the greatest danger to the West, may the standard of the Hackenkreuz, the swastika, be raised from the dust, crowned with the historic words, E habt dot gesagt, I am proud to die for my ideals, and I am sorry for the sons of Britain who have died without knowing why. Back to you, Paul. Oh, I think we lost Paul. He's calling back in. So, here we... Paul, I just finished uh, speaking about William Joyce. I didn't know that I'd lost you on the line. We've got about five minutes left. Are you still with us? I, I am. Yeah, I'm back. I've got my, uh, I've got my proper technical uh, connection back to you now. So I'm, I apologise for that. It doesn't really happen, and they picked a bad time to do it. So maybe once a year I get a little problem, and it just happened unfortunately whilst we were doing this. Uh, Joyce is extremely clear, isn't he, in his observations? Uh, the one that jumped out at me as you were running through them was this great skillet imitation. Um, we know that this goes back. It's a point I seek to try and make. Uh, when you're looking at the identity of who the Israelites are, and I try to point out to people um, that uh, this proclivity that they have to be more English than an Englishman in England and more German than a German in Germany is not a newly acquired behavioral trait. It goes back a long, 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 long time. And uh, they were impersonating Israelites a long, long time ago and have become so confused you could say even themselves that they actually seem to think that it might even apply to them now. That's how bizarre it's all got. But I think, um, you know, Joyce obviously suffered, i.e. they killed him, didn't they? They didn't have no right to do it, but they hung him. Um, Lord Haw Haw, he was a figure of fun. It shows you the power of unopposed propaganda. Uh, when, when propaganda, when there's no countervailing force or voice against propaganda, it only takes a few weeks and everybody begins to think the same way. This is very scary stuff. But of course, the enemy knows this. This is why they continually seek out the printing press. Uh, from the minute it was almost created, it was used as a, as a vehicle for propagandizing and conditioning the thoughts or what is acceptable range of thought 
amongst the populace. And of course, we've got this thing that we touch upon here regularly and we'll continue to do so, Andy. I'm sure this whole thing of hate speech laws and, uh, you know, the, these people have really got a big problem with hate. They hate hate. Shouldn't they be locked up for being haters of hate? Um, but I mean, just pulling it back to, just pulling it back to World War One and Two and the whole thing. There's, there's a couple of other things, just little anecdotes. I remember seeing a, I think it was last year, there was a, a documentary about a little town in Lancashire, I think it was. Uh, and at the beginning, this may not be known, but at the beginning of the war, what they decided to do was when they were recruiting men into the into the army, they thought it would be good if everybody from the same village fought in the same platoon or division. Uh, because they would know one another and they were being sent off and uh, they were country folk and this, that and the other. There was this really moving bit of footage showing you all these really bright-eyed men leaving this town. And this policy of the British Army was, of course, turned out. No one was to know it. You can see why they did it. it turned out to be absolutely disastrous because when a, a division was caught in heavy fire, villages lost all their men. And in this case, this is what happened. And of the 120 men that left, 108 were killed over three days, probably at the Somme, I think, or one of the, maybe Passchendaele, something like that, one of the big, big ones. And it was just the story of this village. There were plaques everywhere, and apparently the the, the church bell um, for the dead rang nonstop for eight days. Uh, they had to ring for a certain number of times for every single man that had been lost. And the whole place was like a ghost town. There were no men left. It was literally wiped out. So this was in the early part of the war. So maybe maybe it was even before the Somme. I don't know. But uh, they, you know, they had to change the policy because of that. That that really struck me. That's the human cost of these things. You know, we're moving here, aren't we? We're talking about it sort of like from an academic point of view. Like we can we can observe this from up in the clouds, and we can we can see the bigger picture of history, which we are going to do. But I am reminded of the. Uh, tremendous pain and loss that must have taken place and did obviously take place on the human level. My dad, um, the last 10 years of uh, my, my dad's life, I had a lot of phone conversations with him. He was, he joined the Royal Navy in 1942 when he was 17. He volunteered in right at the beginning of 1942. And, uh, if you chose, um, the branch of the armed forces that you wanted to, you could go straight in. So he chose the Navy and they put him straight in the Navy. And I remember, I mean, it's coming up, it'll be here today, the parade at the Cenotaph. And whenever it used to come on telly, I always remember my dad just looking at it and he would blow a big raspberry like that, literally, um, of disgust. It's a polite English way of being slightly rude. It's not meant to be, you know, it can be comical. But he used to just say, for what, you know? And he wasn't a great dweller on it, but... It, the conversations I had with him over the last seven or eight years of his life were just, for me, and I think for him, really rewarding because we just – we talked pretty much like we're doing right now. He he wasn't informed, but I was able to supply him with a lot of alternative information for him to consider and to think about. And it was really useful. He wasn't angry about that. It was late on in life, you know, but many, many people have gone through these hellish things. And so the decimation of people has to be borne in mind. The the IQ apparently in England of men dropped ten points because of World War One. Ten points. 
you know, and and you look at this, the root and branch of our the best stock of our people getting wiped out then and 25 years later, and not just us, the same goes for the Germans and the Russians and everything. We managed to recover, but we haven't still got rid of the primary source of the disease. We've got to do it. The bank's got to be nuked. We've got to get hold of the bank. And it's got to be put out of business on these lines for good. And so this fight is, you know, if you want to go, if let's go all the way back. Christ's first public act was to go into that temple with a whip. And he applied it absolutely to the right people. There's our example. We've got to find a way to raise the modern whip and drive them out for good this time. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, yes, I'm reminded my uh, father's father. I never knew him, so I don't call him my grandfather because he died when my father was only 15. And he went, he was conscripted into World War Two. He went in as an A1 condition, came out as a C3, and he died a few years later. So um, this is shown was really about the human tragedy of war. And uh, for those of you who are listening on the download that... Uh, chose not to observe uh, the memory of these people because they were lied to and duped into uh, fighting these wars. You should uh, think about your own family and think about your great-great-grandparents and great-great-uncles and people that you you know, may not know anything about and the wars that they may have been in over the hundreds of years that uh, Gutel Schnaper said, if my sons did not want wars, there would be none. Paul, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I want to thank all of you for listening. Paul and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now. You have been listening to The Andrew Carrington Hitchcock Show, a new show every day of the year on the Eurofolk Radio Network. If you'd like to support Andy's work, please go to his website, andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com, where his book, The Synagogue of Satan, is available in an updated, expanded, and uncensored edition. 